When I was in elementary school, um, I lived two identities. I don't think I'm the only person in elementary school that lived two identities, but one was a shy, hardworking student who kept her head down and did not cause any trouble. And the other one was at home speaking Cantonese with my parents, outspoken and fiercely protective of my family with lots of opinions. As a kid with immigrant parents, I had to explain and interpret a lot for my parents. Um, I had to explain um, what the expectations were at school and just the different rules and regulations of what it looked like to go to school in America. Um, and there were just a lot of embarrassments for me, you know, that, that they didn't go to back to school nights or get involved in PTAs or, or, or I had to be straight, come straight home after school all the time and not have any playdates with friends. Um, and now I realize that they had their own insecurities, right? Like, and hardships of not feeling confident in English. Um, but then at that time, I just felt awkward and misunderstood all the time. And there was this family, the Wang Warovitz, whose backyard faced our backyard. His name, um, and Uncle Peter invited us to church. He was second generation Chinese American, and he had two young kids, younger than me and my, my sister and my brother, um, and just invited us to a Chinese church. And for some reason, after that, I just felt the freedom to climb over my fence and show up at his backyard sliding door whenever I felt like it and stand at their class door and wait for him to open it. And whenever he was home, he would open it for me. Um, he always opened the door for me and invited me in, whatever he was doing. And I don't think at that time I would have been able to articulate how lonely and out of place I felt. Unsure about my identity and where I fit. Um, but he was the safe place for me as a fifth grader. He was a parent, but he wasn't mine. He didn't have these expectations of A pluses from me, and I didn't have to explain how school worked and, and, and the forms that needed to be signed. He just got it, right? And Uncle Peter asked questions and involved me into his life at home with his kids. And later on, when the church needed a place for all the ragtag middle schoolers to um, form a fellowship because there was only a high school fellowship, he volunteered um, to, to take all of us on, maybe because he knew me, um, and he figured he was already running a middle school ministry with me. Um, and he knew how badly we needed a mentor. I never thought of him more than a neighbor and just Uncle Peter. But later on in life, I realized he probably had his hands full. You know, like he had um, an older son that was mentally challenged and a younger daughter that was, you know, dealing with the stresses of that and a wife that was full, working full time and he was working full time and he probably didn't need a girl just standing in his glass sliding door waiting to come in at any moment, right? He had his hands full and yet he was faithful to God and so, so patient with me. Can you think of someone like that in your life? that maybe you were like, we didn't have this intentional mentoring relationship. He was just a person that was safe for me or a woman that was safe for me that just listened and, and created a place where I felt heard and seen. This morning we're speaking on Samuel. Samuel is known as one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. He's so awesome, he has two books written about him. First and Second Samuel, which was actually one book. Um, and there's three main characters in 
first Sam, in first and second Samuel. It is Samuel and it's Saul and David. It happens during a time in the history of the Israelites that where they decided that they needed a king, Saul, and then Saul epically failed, and then they decided to have David as the next king, right? There's a lot that we know about that whole period, right? If you grew up in the church, if you um, have read the Bible, you would know different stories like David and Goliath, right? Um, and, and other stories of David, David and Bathsheba, and all these other stories that you might know happened in First and Second Samuel. And yet, um, it, before Saul and David, there was Samuel. So we're going to talk about Samuel this morning. But like all our stories, his story does not start with him. It starts with his mom, Hannah. Hannah was married to Alkanah, who was a Levite, and Alkanah had two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. It, it tells us that Peninnah had children, and Hannah did not. She was infertile for years, and it grieved her. It says in um, verse 10 of chapter 1, join me in reading this. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way, ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now we see a number of things about Hannah here. We see that she prays as someone who believes that God hears her prayers, that God is one who sees her, right? That's how she prays, because she believes that of God. We see that she is a worshiper who will trust her greatest longing of a child to give back to God. What she's vowing here is that she's going to submit her son as a Nazarite. So back in that day, if you were born in a certain lineage, it was just understood that oh, if you're born like as a Levite and that was your family, that you were going to go serve in the temple of God, right? But the Nazarites were people who were offered and set apart voluntarily to serve in the church, in the church, in the temple, all the days of their lives. And the way that they were set apart, it was revealed in the ways that they dressed, in what they chose to eat, and also that they never cut their hair. So a lot of commentators say that John the Baptist was a Nazarite, right? She's also someone who is willing to stand up to authority and speak what is true. When Eli comes, who's the ultimate authority and says, hey, drunk woman, put away your wine, there's many that would be intimidated by that or feel defensive about that. But she just simply declares, no, I'm not drunk. I've been praying. 
you know, like, and she just knows who she is. She's clear in her identity and she is able to stand up for herself and say, I'm not a worthless woman, but one who is pleading with God. And Eli sees her boldness and her faith and on behalf of God gives her confidence that he will hear her. And so in that, in that combination of Eli and Hannah, Samuel is born and in an early age is entrusted to Eli to serve God. She goes on to have other children, but Hannah's faithfulness and trust in God becomes the legacy of faith in Samuel as we look on. Okay, so let's go to chapter three, and we, let's see more about how Samuel, the boy, is learning um, under Eli. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And so he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. My kids always think this part is so funny. And I suppose it is, right? If you were to watch this like in a movie, it's hilarious. Samuel is 12 and hearing audibly from the Lord is not a common thing. And so there's no expectation that that voice is coming from God. And so he assumes it's Eli, right? And Eli could have missed this opportunity. Being wakened up in the middle of the night several times does not make for a clarity of mind, right? Like, if it was me, I would have just been irritated. Or I would have at least been foggy, right? But he has this moment of clarity, and it says he perceived that it was the Lord, and he instructs Samuel on how to respond to God's voice. Samuel, at this point, it says that he does not have a relationship with God that he is just doing what is expected of him, and he's really good at following instructions. That's what he's got going for him when he hears from the Lord. He's good at following instructions. It is not that he has a deep faith or he has this long relationship with the Lord. No, that's Eli and Hannah. His place in the temple and his acts of service are all because of Hannah and Eli. It is their faithfulness, their own relationships with God that has Samuel in this place to hear from God, to act upon his words. It is not his own doing. And so in verse 10, the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. <laughs> then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. 
Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Can you imagine having to say to your father figure, your teacher and mentor, these damning words from God? <laughs> I can understand his fear on so many levels. I don't want to offend him. This is going to hurt him. I don't want to be wrong. I've never heard God before. I don't know if I should say anything. It's not my place and for me to say anything, right? But Eli encourages him and creates space for him to speak. He asks him and he says, don't hide it from me. And he also puts in the fear and reverence of God in him saying, may God do to you, <laughs> right? Like, do not hide it from me. God told you, you need to speak it, right? And, and it is Eli's responsibility as his teacher and mentor to train him in all the ways of God. And he needs to help him practice and trust that voice of God when he hears it. And so Samuel tells him all of it. And I am sure Eli has his own feelings about hearing that, right? Even though he knows that his sons have kind of you know, screwed up his legacy and have chosen a different path, and he knows that God is not pleased with that. To hear that and, and that proclamation um, of, of um, an ending of covenant with Eli's family, um, it would have really crushed him, right? But he's also one who's practiced in knowing when it is God, and for him to say, that is the Lord, and to give Samuel, that confidence that what you heard is the Lord, let it be so. And he puts aside his own feelings on the back burner so Samuel can grow and trust God's voice. And it says, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. I want to stop for a moment and say that the first three chapters of Samuel's story is not about Samuel. And I would say if your story was written, probably the first three chapters of your story is also not about you. It is about Hannah and Eli and their faithfulness to God in the roles that they played. It is about Hannah's fervent prayers and faithfulness to her vow to know that her son was a miracle given from God and his life was to be offered and set apart to know God in a, a special way. It meant that she could not have her son at home with her. It meant that she could only visit him every so often. It meant that her desires had to be submitted to the plans of God. She had to surrender her one security in life. In those days, women did not have power or wealth apart from their connection to their husband and their sons, right? And so when she surrenders her son in faith to God to be set apart to hear God, she is sacrificing herself and her future, trusting only in the faithfulness of God. She does not know and she is not promised that she will have other children at this point, she just knows that this is the one child that she is given, and she is going to give him back to God. Samuel is the legacy of that faith. He has a faith like his mom, as you will see later on. He is someone who is confident in God, who trusts God even when he has no idea how it's going to work out. He is unapologetic in truth. He knows who he is, and he stands up for it, even if 
nobody else believes him, right? We see that in Hannah, and you will see that in Samuel's story and how he stands, right? He has his mother's faith. Eli becomes foundational in Samuel's understanding of God and how he speaks and how he works. Eli could have given up on the whole mentoring thing after his sons messed up, right? But instead, he remains true to God's call, and he invests in another. Do you ever think what would have happened with Samuel and the nation of Israel had Hannah and Eli not shown up in the ways that they did? Samuel does not say, here I am, based on his own faith, right? He says it because of Hannah and Eli. His openness to God is built on their faith. They create a trellis, a structure, with which Samuel's faith clings to in order to grow. He sees their faith, and he emulates it until it becomes his own. So don't tell me that serving and helping in kids' ministry or youth ministry is not that important. Don't tell me that being a teacher or a mentor isn't life-changing. And don't you ever underestimate how your own prayers and your own faithfulness to God as a parent will affect your child. Where are you saying yes to God that is creating a space for your kids to walk into the legacy of faith? Do you believe that your small and your big steps towards God has ripple effects in your kids, in your families, and in your communities? Our faith and how we live it out, how it makes our decisions will have legacy. Moms and dads, God is mysteriously working in your kids because of you and your faithfulness. Do not stop praying for them. Teachers, people in the school system, your attention, your time, your kindness, your, life, your faith lived out is being watched and absorbed by all the kids. It can turn their lives around. Thank you for seeing them. It is not wasted. I was talking to this grandma um, her name is Myrna, and she runs a, a, an Awana program, and she's 84. She's been serving for 40 years with Awana. Her own kids, Awana is a kid's Bible discipleship program, and she's walked her own kids through the program. She's walked generations after generations of kids to follow Jesus, to learn about their faith, to grow up and have their own kids and, and, and take their kids through Awana program as well. So 84, it's a pretty long time. It's a voice that we don't have in our church. And I am praying all the time that we would have that generation speak to us and, and that we could learn from them because, boy, what a different perspective they have, right? So I was talking to them and I was like, please tell me everything, right? And she was telling me how she has watched less and less families get involved in our generation. That Awana has been thriving, and she's been watching all these kids grow in their faith and, and remain steady in their faith. And in our generation, it has slowed down because of the extracurriculars taken over in weeknights and Saturdays and Sundays. And there's no room to fit anything else. Our generation and our kids are too busy for God. And she said that, and I was like, yeah, but when is Awana every week? 6.30 to 8.15, that's past my kids' bedtime, right? I can't do that. Do you know what they're like when they don't get enough sleep, right? And yet I think of exceptions that I make for other things that go past bedtimes. And if it mattered, I would make time. In the book Habits of the Household, Justin says this, moments aggregate and they become memories and tradition. Our routines become who we are, become the culture and story of our families. 
Do our routines and our schedules reflect what we most care about? Do our routines and our schedules reflect what we most care about? And this is true for parents and their kids. It is also true for single people or just any of us. Do our routines and our schedules reflect what we most care about? And here's the thing. There's not a lot of room in that culture for creating a trellis for our kids to grow in their faith. That busyness becomes a routine in our lives. It becomes the story of our families if we aren't intentional. And so it is with Hannah's intentional faith and Eli's availability that Samuel becomes the prophet, the voice of God to his people. And when the people want a king and Samuel knows it's not a good idea, it's bad news, and God says, go and appoint Saul, he does it anyway. Because Samuel understands that obedience to God supersedes his own opinions on the matter. He becomes the counsel and the conscience to Saul even when Saul makes worse and worse decisions because he is afraid of the people. He wants to be liked. He wants to be popular. He doesn't want to say the bad thing. He wants to please others. And so because of that, he disobeys God over and over again until God rejects him as king. And yet, even then, Samuel continues to love Saul, even in his messed up state. He mentored him. He was one of his closest confidants. There was no one that Saul trusted more than Samuel, even when Samuel didn't say the thing that he wanted to hear. But when God told Samuel to reject Saul as king, to give him the message that God removed his blessing and promise with Saul, I can't imagine what it was like for Samuel to have to go and say that to him. Because he's like, I put you in power. I've watched you. I've supported you as king. And now I have to come and be like, nope. But Samuel tells him, and it says right there in 1 Samuel 15, that after he did it, he grieved over Saul. You see the juxtaposition between Saul and Samuel, right? Saul is tall, builds like a warrior, tough, used to having his own way, right? He's the king. He has to make hard decisions as the king, and he ultimately has to choose between listening to God, and then sometimes people would be mad at him, and it would make him unpopular, or he could listen to the people and what they wanted, and he could remain the favorite and the nice one, the popular one. I think we sometimes forget that Samuel is human, right? He had his opinions, and he didn't like being the downer. No one wants to be the downer at the party, right? But from early on, he learned how to be faithful to God, to care more about what God called him to do and say than what was easy or more pleasing or what would keep him inoffensive and liked. I think about his own heart and his own disappointments. Did you know that Samuel had two sons? that he had groomed them and, and raised them to take his place after he retired. And so it says that he put them in the place as judges after him, Joel and Abijah. And we are told that he, they perverse justice and they took bribes. And so people didn't want them as his, their leaders. And so it is because of that that they say, give us a king instead. We want a king. And so the appointment of Saul is not just that, oh, we don't think that this is a good idea, but you want a king because you want to be like other nations. It is actually in response to the rejection of his own sons who didn't end up walking in the same way and faithfulness as he did, right? Can you imagine how frustrated and disappointed he might be having to appoint, anoint a king as a rejection of his own sons? 
Later on, he's called to look for a new king in the family of Jesse. In 1 Samuel 16, he sees the first son, tall and well-built for battle. And he's like, yep, here's the one. He looks part. And God says, nope, right? One by one, they march before him. And he's like, oh, maybe this one, a little shorter, but still good, right? Until God's like, listen, you know, man looks to the outside, but I look to the heart. And finally, there is no one. And he's like, uh, do you have another guy? Oh, yeah, he's like you know, working with the animals. And he comes tromping in, probably dragging mud in with him. And it says that he is handsome and ruddy. And we're like, great. Oh, that sounds great, right? But really, in that case, it's like, oh, he was cute, right? He was not intimidating. Like handsome, it's like, oh, he was a cute kid, you know? And God says, that's the one. And Samuel's like, really? Really? Okay. And so he has to override his own bias. He has to override his own opinions and his own eyes and choose what it is that God says is the one that he chooses, right? And he continues to invest and anoint David. He continues to mentor and pour in even when his own sons didn't work out, even when Saul didn't work out. He doesn't take it personally. He remains faithful. Now, what does it mean when I say faithful? right? Because I say that about Hannah. I say that about Eli. I say that about um, Samuel, right? What does, what does it mean when I say faithful? We're in this series called Here I Am. We're talking about different people who have come, and, and when God calls, they make themselves available and say, here I am. I am listening. I am here. I want to obey you, right? And before the last two weeks, we've been talking about Abraham and Jacob, and when they say, here I am, they're in a place already of relationship and of trust of God to be able to say, here I am, I am available, send me, right? Um, and yet we don't see that with Samuel, but he actually says the thing before he has the faith to do it. And yet when we continue to see him choose again and again to be faithful, the posture is one of availability, Right? He understands that he is set apart, but he also understands that God has something to say to him and he has a purpose and a call here. But the other posture is the posture of obedience. That yes, you can make yourself available, but not obey, right? So the faithfulness is both the posture of availability and the posture of obedience. I will follow, I will be faithful, even when I am disappointed in how things turned out, even when I am face-to-face -face with my failures and I want to throw in the towel, even when what you're calling me to is uncomfortable and I don't agree with it, even when what I have to say or do will make people not like me or make things very awkward, even then I will be faithful. In the story of Samuel, we don't just have Samuel's story, although... I, I hope that we get a chance to kind of go deeper in Samuel's story on our own because it is a rich, beautiful story of a life lived out in surrender to God. But we also get to see Samuel, uh, Samuel's mom's story, Hannah and Eli and all the other people around them that choose or not choose to be faithful to God. And so today, I just want to ask us, what does faithful like, faithfulness look like for you currently? What does it look like for you to be available to God and say, here I am? And what does it look like for you to have the posture of obedience? Perhaps some of us actually have heard what God has said to us, and we're like, I don't know, that's hard, 
right? Like, I don't know if I want to work it out. And, um, and I think that sometimes I have this gut sense, right? Like, do you ever have this gut sense like, I should do that, right? Or like, you'll keep hearing or seeing the same thing or reading the same thing and, and like, you know, hearing the same thing during sermons and you're like, yeah, I need to do that again and again. And yet, I don't do it because it's just hard. I don't want to obey because I like to make it more complicated than it is. Right? I'm like, well, you know, there's, it's just a complex situation. But I think sometimes for us to be able to just say, I'm just going to put my foot one step in front of the other and just start moving in that direction. Obedience is in the long, like we want to choose a long obedience. And sometimes we just think, oh, if we just make this one decision, that's it. It will be done. And yet I think a lot of times it is obedience in the long term that God is calling for. For some of us, it is just that we are so busy and we're so distracted that we're not even available to hear what God is saying to us. And so it is just even creating space to say, here I am, what do you have to say, right? And sometimes I find in my most distracted places, God speaks right away. (laughs) He's like, I have been waiting for you to put down that phone. I have been wait, you know, like it's like two minutes of silence and God speaks and I was like, okay, wow right? Like sometimes we think, oh, we need to set aside like days of silence and solitude in order for God to speak. And God's like, listen, I just needed four minutes with you, you know? And so I just wonder, like sometimes we make things so big and all God wants from us to be, is to be able to say, here I am, right? I have four minutes. Would you just speak to me right now? And this summer, we're actually going to talk a lot more about what it looks like and what it means to hear from God, what it means to make space for God and hear him, what it looks like to be uh, someone like Hannah who prays and believes that God is someone who hears, right? But for now, we get to start practicing that, right? What does faithfulness look like for you currently? How do you make yourself available to him? I just want to share one quick thing about what that has looked like this last week for me. Um, And it has not been like, oh, I'm carving out extra time with my children to be a good parent because, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. But last week, we were um, at Hoy Arboretum because it was sunny and everybody else was there as well. And so it's packed. There's no parking spaces. And there's this one routine that I have with my kids that whenever I go to a busy place, I, I tell my kids, like, somebody pray for parking right? And so one of them usually chimes in, God, we just pray that you would give us parking, that we would find a parking, right? And, you know, I just want to teach them that we can pray for big and little things. And God just humors me and knows that, like, this is my weak effort in teaching my kids how to pray. And so he answers it every single time, every time, right? We don't have to drive all around and around. We usually find one right away. And the kids are like, wow, Oh, God answered prayers, right? So this one time on Sunday, I'm like, Augie, can you just pray that we'll find parking? And so he's like, you know, he prays the prayer and he's like, it doesn't matter anyway. I was like, oh, let's, ha- let's talk about that. Like, what do you mean? Do you not think that God would answer your prayer? He's like, it's just something silly to pray about. It's silly. And I was like, oh, but don't you think that God cares about silly prayers? Like that, you know, like, that he won't listen because it's just silly. And then we had just 
driven in that parking lot that has like literally seven spots, right? Like, and right when we are near the end, a car pulls out. And I'm like, God loves our silly prayers. He doesn't care if it's silly or if it's big or if it's hard or easy. He just loves to hear us and he loves to answer our prayers, right? I just wonder if there are ways that even as we are wrestling with our own faith and we're like, where's our trellis? That we are also bringing our kids along and saying, here's a trellis for you to grab onto and grow in. So that when there are bigger issues to pray about, when there are harder things that they're aching over and they're wondering if God hears, that they might remember that first root that took place on that trellis and say, but he listened to that silly prayer and maybe he will listen to this. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you so much that you are a God that hears. We thank you that we can bring our kids and the kids around in front of you and know that we can say that you see them and you know them and you love them and there is nothing too small that they can't bring to you and trust you with that. God, you have asked us to steward this next generation. And I pray that we would have the faithfulness like Hannah and Eli to do that. That we would teach them to have faith without our, yeah, to have faithfulness um, and have a posture of obedience and availability to you um, because you have called us to greater things. God, that we would be able to model that and show that in our everyday lives, that we would create new routines and spaces where our kids can grow in that. And for those of us who even have remembered the ways that people have done that for us, have mentored us in that, have shown us what it looks like to be available and to love well, God, I just pray that we would see those people as pillars in our own trellis, that we would be able to take time to call them or send an email and just say to them, thank you for your investment in me. Whether or not it was a parent or a Sunday school teacher or, or whatever, that God, you have sent people in our lives to love us well and show, show us your face. Thank you, God. We pray this in your name. Amen.